Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, a podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, teach a class, get a job, raise a young child, and survive the social isolation of COVID-19. This is the 11th in a series on work and play in the Industrial Revolution, and it will be about sports. Uh, If you haven't listened to the series, uh, maybe go back to episode one. Uh, This episode will kind of touch on some of the things we talked about in earlier episodes, but it's not entirely necessary. So when I'm kind of justifying this class to people who don't really know that much about history, one of the ways that I, I, I try to make it you know, clear what matters about it is I, I, I ask them to think about the sports that they play. Um, it, chances are that if you play a sport or watch a sport or like a sport, that it started during this time period of, of, of the long industrial revolution and probably maybe started in Britain. Why? Why is it that so many sports started in the, in, in the 19th century? You know, uh, football, rugby, baseball, basketball was in the very early 20th century. But, but why is it? And this class, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, I just have to, 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 to say something at the outset before we really delve into things. Um, one of the you know, side effects of COVID-19 is that I can't go to campus. And I had a big, you know, fact-rich book that I was going to read for this particular class period that would tell me all about like the long detailed histories of particular sports. And I'd be able to tell you, you know, the date that the football association was founded or like, you know, the various people who actually ran it, you know, actual, actual historical facts. But uh, that book is in my office on campus, which I'm not allowed to go to. So instead, I, I read some theoretical articles. So this this particular episode is, is, is going to have a lot fewer names and dates and, you know, like concrete things. And it will be a lot more just me talking about, you know, the wider arc of history. It'll be more like a, a, a conversation you might have over a beer or two than, you know, a lecture in a lecture class. Um, so how are we going to approach this? First, I'm going to talk about, you know, what do I mean when I say that modern sports really developed in the 19th century? I'll, I'll make a comparison between how we consider sports and physical exercises today and how people might have considered them in, in you know, the, the traditional period of old Marian England, even though I know that that traditional period is, is not a, an accurate, you know, descriptor. Then uh, I'm going to talk about three different kinds of sports and and their histories. Uh, First, I'll talk about the mass spectator sports like football and rugby. Um, Then I will talk about the development of elite sports, particularly golf. Um, And finally, I'm going to be talking about something that that I'm calling bourgeois exercises. They're not like team sports. They're not competitive, but they're forms of physical exercise that still very much are with us today that also form at around the same time. And, and, And the differences between the competitive mass spectator sports and these bourgeois, you know, exercises is, is, is really telling. And, and, and something, frankly, that I, I think about a lot when I think about my own leisure preferences and, and, and what I actually do with my own life. So uh, the philosopher, sociologist Pierre Bourdieu uh, wrote this uh, great little essay called uh, Sport and Social Class, which I assigned to my students. And, and, and it's the basis for a lot of my thinking in this, in this episode. One of the things that he says is, is look, sport as, as a modern thing is entirely new. 
It's entirely a product of, of the long 19th century. Before that, you just had games. What does he mean by that? Well, when we talked in our first episode, we talked about like the traditional calendar, which was tied up with the seasons. You know, you'd have uh, a particular kinds of local festivals that would take place at the same time in the year that would have what they did really influenced by, you know, the, the weather and how it was outside. Maybe in the summer, you would play a big game of football. Now, now this is what Bourdieu means by, by game. So there were tons of little games that were included in these local seasonal rituals. They didn't necessarily have written rules. They probably didn't have written rules. The rules probably changed over time. They, they weren't exactly, you know, rational and legible like modern sports are. They were done not by, you know, professionals, but just by people in the community, whoever was, was there. Um, and they were, you know, just kind of they 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 weren't thought of as as a world of their own. They were they were connected with other things. They were connected with the with the fairs and feasts and religious rituals with which they were, uh, you know, uh, coterminous with, or they were connected with particular kinds of, of of social relationships, like a manorial lord having people over to go hunt, you know. So it wasn't like like hunting was a sport that that people you know would just pursue of their own accord. It wasn't like you'd get hunting magazine. It wasn't like football was a sport. You'd join a football association. It was that these things happened in, in contexts of, of, of other kinds of social relationships. So what, ha- what, what, what changed? Modern sports are disconnected from the seasonal calendar. They, they happen in their own time. I mean, yeah, there's a football season and a basketball season and a baseball season, but you can always play football, basketball, or baseball if you want to. And furthermore, those seasons aren't you know, really tied with, with, with larger rhythms of, of, of society. Instead, they're tied to you know, the sporting calendar itself. And also, sports became like worlds of their own. They weren't done by communities, but by specialized groups. Sometimes these were formally organized, like there were professional groups, like the, the Football Association. And, and sometimes they were served by specialized entrepreneurial capitalist organizations. So, you know, back in the day, you'd have football and maybe somebody would just make a ball or a leather worker would patch together a ball. But by the 19th century, you would have a football industry that would serve making the things that made football possible. Not only the kit, not only the ball and the shoes and the shirts and the stadiums, but also all of those extra things that we need to enjoy it. The magazines, the fan mail, the uh, banners, the, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the idiot's guide to football, all of these physical things that are required to enjoy it started to have their own specialized organizations to produce them and to understand them. And also, probably the biggest change is that, uh, like everything else in the 19th century, sports became predictable and rational, legible, calculable. In the 18th century, you know, when two sides of a, a, a sporting game sat down and, 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 and started to play, they wouldn't just begin the game, they would talk about what the rules were. 
they would kind of debate it. They 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 talk about it because each side would have different rules, different understandings of what the game was, how many points you'd play to, how many people on each side of a match, what counted as a a, a foul or not. By the 19th century, sports were governed by rules that were made not by the participants but by outside bodies. Um, And that made sports a lot more predictable. You didn't just have like games that people would play like on a Sunday. You didn't just have like, you know, informal pickup matches on uh, industrial streets of football. You had football that had definite rules that people had to learn and follow. And this meant that wherever you went, you had football. You didn't have to learn the rules anew when you traveled to a new village. No, everybody played the same kind of football. It was predictable. It was rational. The rules had meanings. They had reasons. People debated them and tried to formulate them to make the game better. So that's the big, you know, overarching you know, uh, a story here, the shift from games to sports. Now let's dig in a little bit to some particular stories. First, we're going to talk about the development of mass spectator sports. Now, now we should really tease these out and talk about the development of mass sports and the development of spectator sports, but it happens that mass sports tend to become spectator sports, so I can kind of fudge them all together. These are the sports that you will watch on TV. Uh, what the British people call football uh, and what the Americans call soccer is a really good example and, and what what the British people call rugby and all its various different kinds of flavors and what the Americans call football. These these are, you know, the big mass spectator sports par excellence. And we could also include basketball and baseball, but those are less uh, British stories, so I'm not focusing on them. Now, these sports have the same general trajectory. They began as games that were formalized in particular institutions to help the people in those institutions let off steam in acceptable ways. Uh, For football, these institutions were often workplaces and factories uh, or neighborhoods. And for rugby, these institutions were schools. And so these practices that that had once just been kind of games that people would pick up and set down got a set of rules that made them predictable, that gave them kind of a a concrete shape. And people started to pick them up outside of the institutions in which they were developed. Rugby uh, was taken from the rugby school where its rules were originally written and then brought out to tons of other institutions uh, and other places where young men played games. Uh, Association football, what would become soccer, in America moved out of the factories and, 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 and little neighborhood groups in which it was originally played and started to be played just uh, uh, as, as a game of its own. The second movement is that these games that people played as young people to kind of let off steam started to be professionalized. They started to be something that people would go off and watch of their own accord. Um, usually working class people, but you know this this was far more broader based. So in the 19th century, you have the beginning of the football match as a, a community event, not something that people would go off and have a thousand people playing the game of football like you might have in the 17th century. Instead, you'd have thousands of people watching um, a group of people play football on the pitch. And we see a big change in in, 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 in the nature of participation in these games. Um, you know, people in the 19th century, you'd play football and rugby when you were younger. 
when you had steam to blow off, when you were a little bit more wild, when you got married, you tend to leave off participation in these mass sports and move on to a pure spectator. Now, in contrast to these mass spectator sports, we also get the formalization of elite sports. Now, I don't want to, you know, make too fine a point of this because elite people were having particular kinds of elite sporting matches for a really long time. I don't think that we need to be like Pierre Bourdieu and make a really super strong division between the traditional and the modern. But these changed as well. And, and just to give an example of, of how they changed, I'm going to quickly talk about the worst sport on earth, which is golf. Um, you know, if you were an 18th century gentleman, you might play golf sometimes if you went off to Scotland. Golf was really big in Scotland, a popular sport. It was played uh, in, uh, uh, you know, town commons and places called links, which could be, you know, as varied as, say, like a, a, a little bit of wasteland that you couldn't grow crops on to, you know, some nice sloping meadows uh, 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 chewed over by, by sheep. Um, but these common grounds that were open for everybody to play golf on slowly over the 18th and 19th centuries began to be enclosed and organized by particular kinds of golfing associations and, and clubs that tried to limit the kinds of people who would come and play. And as this was happening, the railway system meant that people could go off to Scotland and the, learn the sport of golf, which they thought was pretty cool, and this sport spread throughout Britain. Now, I just want to point out kind of the structural elements uh, that make golf an elite sport, because I'm a lot more clear about them than the, you know, the blow by blow of how, how, how golf uh, spread all over Britain. So these elite sports require something limited. Uh, in golf's case, it's the golf links. You know, it's hard to get onto the golf links after uh, the 18th century. You need to know somebody. You need to be a member of a club. You need to to pay your membership fees and all that. Uh, you know, when I'm 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 reading uh, uh, his you know the, the the minutes of golf clubs for my my dissertation, and a lot of them are formed explicitly as ways of keeping the rabble out of golf competitions and golf links. They say, look, we have a problem with you know un dignified people coming onto the golf links and participating in our golf matches and what would happen if one of them won. Instead, we have to have some sort of organization to figure out who is fit. So in all of these elite sports, uh, you have some sort of thing where access is limited. And this means that it becomes a social occasion as well. If access to the golf links is limited, then the fancy people who can play golf will go off and play golf. And if you want to be a fancy person who hangs out with other fancy people, you too will play golf. Because out on the golf links, you don't just, you know, play a round of golf for fun. It's a key socializing occasion. You can actually meet people on the golf course. Um, and also, these kinds of elite uh, sports tend to be technical, gear heavy. Uh, they're things that, that that old people can play and, 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 and in some ways keep up with younger people. Uh, other examples of, of, of these sorts of games are tennis, which require, you know, access to a tennis court and often specialized gear. Um, and I can't think of any right now because my, my baby's going through a four month sleep regression and my, my memory is shot. So let's move on to the third kind of sport, which I'm calling bourgeois exercises. 
Now, there's something about being a middle class, uh, improving, upwardly mobile person, which which makes you want to make your body uh, work better. When I'm reading uh, stories from the 18th century, you, you hear about these young men in London uh, making good uh, of themselves. And what do they do at night? Well, they they practice ringing. What do they practice ringing on? On, on? on bells that have their clappers taking out, on dumbbells. So you have these young men in like the 1710s in London, you know, working on dumbbells at night. I mean, there's something about being a middle class person that makes you want to improve your body. And there's a whole set of these exercises that develop in the long 19th century. Change ring, which I've talked about before, mountaineering, biking, um, there's also a bunch of postural exercises, things that make you stand up straighter and 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 and, and seek to scientifically make your body uh, 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 more, you know, correct. And and when I think about the development of these bourgeois exercises, like I can't help but thinking about running and yoga. Like if I have, you know, I'm a bourgeois person, I'm middle class, and and when I talk to my friends, we talk about what sports we do. We don't play group sports. We don't play these competitive things. No, we play these sports of self-improvement. We run. Why do we run? Well, because we're rational. We plan for the future. And we know scientifically that if we run, we will be more efficient at our jobs. We will lose weight and look better. We will have fewer health problems down the road. But what's important to note is that we uh, uh, do these things because we have a faith in the scientific you know, professional groups that tell us that running is good for us. We have faith that we will do this long and boring and arduous thing day after day and kind of think that it's fun in order to improve ourselves. Yoga, too, is this very specialized and non-intuitive practice that that promises to 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 help us out with 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 the you know slow and undignified problems with our bodies. Like if you like me are a middle class person who spends most of the time at their computer, one of the things that bothers you is that your back starts to hurt. I'm carrying a baby for eight hours a day. My back starts to hurt. It doesn't feel good. It feels wrong. And what is yoga? promise us? Well, it promises us by being really specialized and articulate and precise. We can do these particular practices, these, these series of poses that can return our body to the state that it needs to be. We do it not only for the pleasure of, of, of playing it. We don't do it necessarily for uh, the opportunity of meeting other people like, like those elite sports like golf or, 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 or rock climbing. Instead, we do it as, as a kind of promise to ourselves that we will make ourselves better. And, you know, in these sports and in, in, in the stories that I'm telling, I don't want to make it seem like a sport just gets born and it's it's stuck like a, a, a mass spectator sport or an elite sport or a, or, a, or a bourgeois exercise for its entire period of time. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, make the boundaries between these three little buckets seem any any stronger than they need to be. Take the example of, of biking, right? So, like, biking in the late 19th century started off as, as a middle-class bourgeois exercise. It was, it was a way for young men to show off how 
cool they were by going really, really fast. And the bikes that you see in that time period were designed as a way to help young men go really, really fast. If you see uh, those um, weird penny-farthing bicycles, the, 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 the ones with the really huge wheel up front and the really small wheel in the back, well, they were designed like that because that made them go really fast on flat ground. With the development of the safety bicycle, you see the change. It's called the safety bicycle. It's a bike that we have today that has those little gears that allow it uh, to uh, go at faster and slower speeds and up and down hills and all that. The development of the safety bicycle allowed biking to be something else. It allowed it to be less of a bourgeois exercise and be available for more people. Biking became less something that people did just to show off their speed, their masculine energies, and more something that people could do on tours. There were biking clubs that started to get founded. Women started to bike. It became a tool of freedom, of transport, of going places. So uh, things could can and do change. I think that this is really important when we look at, at our new weird COVID-19 world and we think about how sports are going to change here. Uh, one of the big things that is happening, if you're a young person you know is happening with sports, is that there's a new kind of sport that doesn't really seem like a sport. Uh, Esports. These are games like League of Legends that people you know practice a ton at and can make big money and there's tournaments and everything. And, and I don't necessarily think that they're a sport like basketball, but they clearly require intense, virtuosic physical skills. You need to click a certain, you know, large amount of time. And they, they, they include strategy too. They don't leave their players sweating and, and, and grunting like, like a football match, but they're clearly physical activities that have a deep amount of challenge to them. And so even now we see this, the, the, the boundaries of sports uh, moving a little bit. But what I think is really interesting, what I think is important, what I want to leave you with is the idea that, that, that this idea of sports as its own you know, autonomous realm that is governed by rational rules and pro professional bodies that is organized in a, in, a, in, a, in a legible way, that begins at our time period in the long 19th century. Thanks very much for sticking out this abbreviated, factless uh, episode of Making of Historian. Um, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, uh, drop me a line on social media. Follow me on Facebook at Making of Historian. And now you can uh, drop us money on Patreon. I'm still at the undignified number of zero uh, patrons. I have I have zero patrons right now. Um, so you'll make me happy if you if you join up and drop me just uh, five bucks a month. Um, if you like the show, rate and review us. I already said that. Uh, thank you very much to all the listeners. Thank you to the mothers-in-law out there who uh, uh, keep this podcast going. Um, thank you to Duncan Barton, who did our image, and Jonathan Lear, who did the music. I will back, be back next week, where we will be talking about sex in the Victorian era. Uh, meet me then. Meet me then.